What a great video. And I love that line. Religion is about having to be right. Grace is about being right with God and others. As we continue this series, The Gifts of Christmas, today we're going to talk about the gift of grace and what does it mean to be right with God and with others. You know, the truth is because uh, Jesus showed us grace, uh, because he has given us this gift of grace, we can give grace to the other people in our life. In fact, if we're honest, grace is one of the most beautiful attributes that we can possess, and we as Christians should be the most gracious people on the planet, to be honest. We really should be. We should be more gracious than anyone. That's the reality. Um, in the video we watched, it's interesting, this this maniac was so bound up in his religion that he lost sight of showing the beauty of grace. He couldn't even demonstrate what that grace was. On the other hand, the clerk sends him this gift. And how many want to know what's in that gift, right? We all want to know what's in that package. I think what's in the package, honestly, is, um, is, uh, is grace. I mean, that's what it's all about. That was the gift she gave him was the gift of grace. And we're going to unwrap that gift this morning. Um, let me give you a big idea, and then we're going to jump right in here and look at three things about God's grace today. Um, but here's our big idea. Grace is the undeserved kindness of God responding to my faith. It is the undeserved kindness of God responding to my faith. And we're going to see today that grace really is a response to faith in all of our lives, throughout our lives, in various areas. We demonstrate faith and God shows us uh, grace. And so unwrapping this gift of grace, three realities about God's grace, and, and uh, we'll start in Luke chapter 1, we're going to look and, and start with Mary again today. Mary, this young girl, probably about, you could say maybe 15 years old, um, somewhere around there, that's about what her age is. Um, she's a young teenage girl, and uh, she is thrust into the Christmas story in a pretty dramatic way, and we'll use her story today um, and he came to her the angel came to her and said greetings O favored one the Lord is with you but she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be and the angel said to her do not be afraid Mary for you have found favor with God notice that it uses that word favor with Mary on two occasions greetings O favored one and then it says you have found favor with God. Here is um, really the first point. Grace is the response by God to our faith. Grace is the response by God to our faith. We have faith and God comes and responds to us with his grace. And I've got three words we'll tie into grace today. Grace, first is righteousness. If you think of grace, think about it's the gift of righteousness. Um, and that word favor there, I just mentioned that it mentions the word favor twice. That's the Greek word charis. Uh, often translated in the Bible as grace. It's where we get our Greek word charity. And this is exactly what God came and had upon Mary. He had grace. He had favor for Mary. And why? Because she had faith. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, we all know this verse. Here's a, one of the prime verses in the Bible that show us this relationship between grace and faith. Uh, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And 
So here's this, this, this really simple, uh, simple verse that tells us we are saved by faith through grace. I have faith, God responds to my faith with grace. And um, it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. Um, the reality is it's not that we don't, uh, we, it's not that we never get grace without faith. It just means that whenever we have faith, I believe God responds to our faith with some form of, of grace and uh, we'll see that as we go through this this morning uh, we see this here this idea of saving grace in this passage right here and think of it this way really faith is a non-work trusting instead in the work of christ faith really is a non-work where i put all my faith and trust in what christ has done what he's done for me what he did that i couldn't do on the cross and how he has made me right with God. And what's great about that verse in Ephesians 2 is it takes all the boasting and bragging right out of our relationship with God and out of our salvation. There will never be anybody at any time in heaven that can stand there and boast and brag about what they did to get into heaven because we have nothing to do with it. It is all about our faith. It's the non-work of faith that gets us into heaven. And you know that verse 2, think about this verse in Ephesians 2 we just read Understand, that's not just a New Testament verse. We can look at that and think, well, that's a New Testament verse of grace. And No, that's, that's, an, all, that's an Old Testament verse. That's an all-Bible verse. Everybody throughout the Bible was saved by grace through faith, and no one earned their salvation. No one can boast or brag about what they did to be in a right standing with God. Here's the, the point then. When it says, when the angel says that Mary found favor with God, that means she had faith in God. When the angel says Mary found favor with God, that means that she had faith in God. Um, I shared this last week too, but the Bible talks about Joseph and makes a very clear statement that Joseph was a just man or a righteous man. And I made the point that I believe that's why God chose them to be the mother and father of Jesus because they both had this, this deep abiding faith. Um, they were just and righteous because they had faith in God. But think about th- that idea there a minute that Joseph introduces another word to us. It's that word righteous, that, that idea of righteousness. And righteousness fits into this whole idea of, of faith and grace. In fact, Abraham help, helps explain that. If you, if you know Abraham has a very important part in God's uh, story throughout Scripture. He was the first Jew in the Bible. He's who God used to start the entire Jewish nation. And, um, and again, why did God choose Abraham to start the Jewish nation? Here it is in Romans chapter 4, just a couple of verses. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, he had faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So why was Abraham a righteous man? Why, what made Abraham righteous? Because he had the non-work of faith. He believed in God. God then responded to Abraham's faith with grace. That grace took the form of righteousness. God counted Abraham righteous or right with God based not on any work that Abraham did but based totally on his faith that he had in God. Now, did you catch that word gift in there? Notice it says the word gift. Uh, the one who works his wages are not counted as a gift. So Abraham received a gift, and you don't work for a gift. Gifts are free. The gift of grace that results in righteousness is a free gift that we cannot 
earn. Now, did Abraham do good works? Well, certainly Abraham did good works. Abraham obeyed God and followed him to the promised land. Abraham took his only son, Isaac, up a hill, up a mountain, was ready to crucify him in obedience to God. He did a lot of good works, but those good works were not what saved him. What saved him was his faith in God. What Abraham teaches us that is so important, so vital, is that right living, doing the right thing, living a good life, that never equates with righteousness. We, we start going down that road, you get into self-righteousness, and that's never a good thing. And so, no amount of right living will lead to my righteousness. That only comes through faith and belief in God and in Christ and what he did for us on the cross. So, we could say it this way, that God responds to my faith with saving grace that credits me with his righteousness. Now, one other example in the Bible we can use to kind of tie in here in the Old Testament is Noah. Noah's a great example as well. Um, Noah lived on the earth in a very dark time. Uh, in fact, it was so dark that God had to destroy the entire world. He had to destroy everything and everyone on the earth and start over again. That's how dark. You think you live in bad times today. Well, it must not be as bad as it was then. At least not yet. Probably heading there. But th- here's Noah's great example. And so God used Noah to start over the entire earth. Why did God choose Noah? Well, look what it says there in in, um, Genesis 6. But Noah found favor, or he found grace, in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. And then Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. So Noah found favor, or some translations say Noah found grace with God. And why? Because he was a righteous man. Why Why was Noah a righteous man? Because he walked with God? No, because he had faith. Because he believed in God, because righteousness always comes through, through the non-work of faith. It comes through our belief. Now, Noah did walk with God, which means he lived out his faith in everyday life. He lived it out for all the world to see. He lived a life of faith. Walking with God didn't make him righteous, though. Having faith in God did. So, the point of emphasis here is this. When the angel said that Mary found favor with God, that means that she had faith in God. And God responds to our faith in many different forms, but he responds to our saving faith here with with grace. He saves us when we have faith in him. One other thing before I move on to point two here is that this favor or grace was so deep in Mary, it's really a part of her identity. And here's where I get that, because note, note what the angel says to Mary. He says, oh, favored one. He, he kind of he names her as favored one. I think that's pretty, pretty significant and pretty key. And I'm always talking about finding our identity in Christ. And, and Mary says that. Mary says that from this point, all will call me blessed because I am the favored one. Meaning people will see God's favor on her and in her. Well, when... When I talk about finding our identity in Christ, just understand what what that really means. That simply means that I see myself as God sees me. I see myself just as God sees me and I can look in the mirror and I can see the favor of God upon my life. That God favors me. but, But here's the key. Think about this. Why does God favor me? When you look in the mirror, realize that God favors you. Not because of 
anything you've done, not because you've earned some status with him, but because he loves you and because you just had faith in him. You had faith, you had faith, and this is what it is, it's faith that when you look in the mirror and you feel ugly and you feel like you, you don't live up to everything you should be and, and you feel unrighteous at times, you look in the mirror and faith says, God still favors me and loves me. Maybe some people in the world don't love me. Maybe some people in the world would reject me, and, but God never will. It's that incredible faith. So grace then is the response by God to our faith. Grace equals righteousness. That's the first reality. Here's the second reality this morning. Look at verses 31 through 33. And behold, you will conceive, he, the angel tells Mary, in your womb, and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Here's the second thing about grace. Grace is an invitation from God to have a part in his redemptive story. Grace is a response by God to our faith and now it is an invitation from God to have a part in his redemptive story. Think about grace in a sense giving us the gift of purpose. We get the gift of righteousness but we get the gift of purpose and God will bring a purpose to our life that we will find nowhere else. I want us to understand the morning that God's grace doesn't simply save us. It does so much more. It invites us to be a part of his incredible story and of his redemptive plan. Think of Noah again. Why do we know Noah so well today? Do we know Noah so well because Noah was a righteous man and he's in heaven? <laughs> because he went to heaven because God showed him grace? No, we know Noah today because Noah was an integral part, a vital part of God's redemptive story. He built the ark that saved the world and in the process served as a type of Christ. You see, Noah received the gift of God's grace, but that was more than his salvation. That was his invitation to be a part in God's incredible, redemptive story. And he's inviting you and me today to have a part in that incredible story. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7. By faith, Noah being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Think about that. What was Noah's purpose in life? To be an heir of righteousness. To be an heir of righteousness. All of us in this room today that are saved, every one of us in this room that are saved, you know what we can do? We can say thank you Noah for, being, for keeping righteousness alive on the earth. Here's, here's the, the beauty of Noah's story. I love to just share this, is that so many people struggle with the Old Testament. They struggle with God's anger and his harshness and his wrath. And, and sometimes he would tell Israel to wipe out entire nations, even the women and children, and people struggle with that. That's tough. It's like God's supposed to be loving. and He's having them kill all the women and children even. How does that work? And let me tell you how it works. Noah's the best example of this. God creates Adam and Eve. And, and then sin comes into the world and things get bad and things get worse and things get worse. And finally, 1,500 years later, this is how patient and long-suffering God is. 1,500 years later, God's down to his last righteous person. Literally. Down to his last righteous person, Noah. And God says, I don't have any choice. 
This is how long-suffering and patient and merciful God is. He doesn't want to do this, but he's down. He has no other options. I have to destroy the entire world and start over. And he took Noah, the one righteous man who was righteous because he had faith in God. And so basically, he takes Noah, who walked with him, and he starts the whole world over with Noah. Wipes everything out, starts it all over. 1,500 years, things went to, to downhill and God almost lost it all. And then he started over with Noah. That's the extent of God's mercy and grace. And Noah was invited to be a part of his plan and he kept righteousness alive on the earth so that you and I could be here today. God's grace saves us and then it invites us to a life of eternal purpose. Just think about that. For Mary, that invitation was to be the mother of Jesus. Think of how many young girls over the years in churches throughout the centuries have played the role of Mary in the church Christmas pageant, right? And they've learned all the lines and they're in this production for about an hour and that's kind of tough learning all those lines. Remember last year when Jenna learned all those lines for that great program we did? That's tough sometimes. But for Mary, this wasn't just a play for an hour on a Sunday night or a Sunday morning or... This was a lifetime calling that was given to her, a lifetime invitation to a life of purpose. Now, some might argue with that. Some might say, well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'm going to throw it out to you. How many think this was an invitation to Mary? How many think Mary, when the angel came, Mary could have said, uh, sorry, not for me. <laughs> I don't want to be the mother of the Messiah. I refuse. How many think Mary could have said no? How many think she couldn't say no? Well, here, here's how I think it works out. And I think you're right, Steve. I think Mary could have said no. But you know why I think God came to, to Mary? Because he knew Mary wouldn't say no. He went to someone who he knew would not turn him down. He knew Mary's heart. He knew that Mary wouldn't say no to him. And so he goes to Mary and says, I'm inviting you to have a part in my redemptive plan, my redemptive story. The reality is, is that God wants to use us. Look at Mary's life. I'll show you three ways that God will use you. And it's kind of cool to think about this, but he will use us from the inside out. God always does this. What I mean is, just as Mary birthed the baby Jesus, and she was always known, Mary was always known for all generations. People will call me blessed. People always knew who Mary was, but they knew who she was in relationship to who? To Christ. And for you and I, Christ is birthed in us, right? We come to know Christ as our Savior. He's, he's raised to life in us. He comes to live in us. And then people see Christ in us. But, and Christ uses us and, and uses us in his redemptive story. But you know what he does? He uses us from the inside out. He uses us through our personality. And he uses us through our gifts and through our talents and our abilities and our experiences. And he uses us through our pain and our brokenness and our hurt, even through our sin. How crazy is that? That God takes his story and he, and he tells his story through our story from the inside out. God wants to use you in that way. Just know that this morning he does. And then God uses us in ways that we cannot conceive. Pun intended. <laughs> Mary, let's think about it. Mary might have known the prophecy of old. She might have known that one day there's gonna be a virgin give birth to a child and she might have known all that. Do you think Mary ever, in her wildest imaginations, ever thought or dreamt 
or, or said, hope someday I can be the mother of the Messiah. She probably never, never even crossed her mind that she might one day be that person. God will use you in ways that you cannot conceive. Ways that will just astound you if you will open him, yourself up to him. You have no idea how he will use you, just that he will. And then God uses us all to tell the same story. Every one of us in this room, he wants to use us to tell the same story. In the text here, it talks about, it mentions two things. It mentions the throne of David, and it mentions the house of Jacob. And I think of David and Jacob, and actually, you think of all the Old Testament prophets throughout the Old Testament, you think of all of them, and they were all what? They were all in unison telling the exact same story. And we do that today. We really, today, when you think about churches all over the world, denomination to denomination in some sense, we should all be telling the same story. Yeah, we'll have different nuances and there's different things we see theologically in the Bible, but we should all be telling. If we, if we believe Christ is the Son of God and went to the cross and died and rose again to save mankind from their sin, we should all be telling the same story. The reality is even as a local church here, we should all be telling the same story. We should have a, a common purpose that, that motivates us to tell the same story. Philippians 2.2, complete my joy, says Paul, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, and we're all telling the same story of the incredible love of God. God wants to use us, and he will use us together, all as one. There's power when, we're, when we come together with one voice, with a unified voice to proclaim the gospel. Here's the greater question this morning, though. The greater question this morning, though, is this. What story is your life telling? Or whose story is your life telling? Think about that. Whose story are you telling with your life? Are you telling your story? Is your life all about you? And, or are you telling the story of Christ the Messiah. Philippians 1.21, this is Paul's testimony, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul said for me to live is Christ. For me to live is to tell the story of the Messiah. That's the truth. So, ask yourself that question. In the end, grace equals purpose. Grace is righteousness, grace is purpose. Grace is righteousness and grace is purpose. Grace is the undeserved kindness of God responding to my faith. And grace is the response by God to our faith. And grace is an invitation from God to have a part in his redemptive story. Let's look at a third and final reality. Luke chapter 1 verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? I love that biology question. I say that all the time, but it's just, how is that going to happen? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth hour with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed 
from you. There's some really uh, powerful, challenging stuff in this last section here. But here's the third thing about grace. Grace is the power of God to fulfill our calling. Grace is the power of God to fulfill our calling. Think about this third word. Grace is righteousness and purpose, and then grace is strength. That's the gift of strength that God comes and empowers us to fulfill the calling, the invitation he gives to us. There is a grace that saves us, a grace that calls us, and a grace that empowers us. In the context here, it says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Now, the reference to power here is the power that really will impregnate Mary. This power is going to come on her and impregnate her to to give birth. It talks about being overshadowed by the Most High and and commentators kind of look at that as in the Old Testament when that great cloud of glory would come down upon the Israelite people and surround them. And it's like there's going to be this cloud of glory that's going to come down and fall upon Mary and empower her to conceive the Christ child. But God's grace does that to you and I. Not in that same way, not in a biological way, but God's grace comes and comes to us and empowers us to fulfill the mission that he had, has called us for. Here's the thing, the, 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 when, the, when the power will fall on Mary to Im- impregnate her, that's not where the power of God ends in her life, that's where it begins. He's gonna come and fill her and empower her to carry out this mission for the next how many years of her life? 33 at least. Remember back in 2 Corinthians 12, we read this, shared this last series we did on, that series called Enough. Here's Paul's testimony. He, Christ, said to me, Paul, my grace is what? It's sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. So so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Note that Paul understood God's grace was was an empowering strength that came upon him, an empowering grace that enabled him to fulfill the calling of God in his life. Now, why is this power so important to Mary and why is it so important to us? Well, think about this. First, God wants to do something in Mary's life that is impossible. He tells her that. I'm gonna do something that is, nothing's impossible for God, but by the world standards, what I wanna do in your life is impossible. It will defy the very laws of nature, what I want to do in your life. It will defy all the odds. Break the laws of nature. It's biologically impossible. That Greek word power there, we often find this in scripture. It's the word dunamis, which means that word dynamite. So God's gonna work some pretty powerful stuff in Mary's life. The empowerment that I want us to understand though is not the biological empowerment. It's more than that. It's that God empowers us to carry out his mission. And so let me, let me give you th- this thing. Here's the thing that I think Mary is confronted with and we are often confronted with. This is what God wants from us. God has an open-ended mission for Mary that requires an open-ended response. Think about that. And God invites us and God calls us and gives us an open-ended invitation, an open-ended mission that requires an open-ended response. What do I mean by that? I mean this. Um, um, 
Here's Mary's response. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. That's Mary's response. That's an open-ended response. What do I mean by an open-ended response? Think about how Mary responds. Now think about this reality, okay? God calls Mary to a mission he doesn't fully explain. And Mary agrees to a mission she doesn't fully understand. Mary says, okay, I'm your servant. I'll do whatever you want. And she doesn't even know what she's getting herself into. Let's be honest, she really doesn't. She has no idea what it means to be the mother of the Messiah. She has no idea what that will will entail. She can't forecast the future and what that will look like to be the mother of the Messiah. Now let's be honest. Any first-time mother would say, you can't forecast the future. You have no idea what you're getting into when you become a mother, right? It just, there's all kinds of stuff that comes with being a mom that you don't even, you can't factor in until you're a mother. Well, take Mary and multiply that a hundredfold probably because what she's getting into being the mother of the Messiah. I want us to weigh out the unique challenges that Mary would face as the mother of the Messiah. All the unaccounted situations. For instance, there would be a unique sense of sibling rivalry in your home, probably, if Jesus is one of the siblings. In fact, we know that even as adults, that Jesus' brothers did not believe him. Can you imagine what that was like? And so you've got one of your children says, I'm the Son of God, I'm the Messiah of the world, you know, and the other brothers, they ain't buying it. And you can kind of almost figure out why they they wouldn't buy it. I mean, you can almost sense why they may not agree. But there's all kinds of things. How about when someone would come along and, and say to you, you know what your son was teaching the other day? You know what your son was saying about rich people getting into heaven? Do you know, do you believe what he was saying? And, and so Jesus always had these controversial teachings, right? He said things that were controversial and he stirred the pot. And here's the reality. Mary was the mother of that teacher. Think about how that, how that would be, you know, to always be hearing from people about what Jesus was saying and teaching and doing. Do you know your son went into the temple and just threw all the money changers out and turned all the tables over? Who does your son think he is? Just think about what she would deal with. And then think about when you personally, as his mother, would be challenged by his teachings. When you would personally be convicted or leveled by something that he said and it would just kind of stop you in your tracks. There was so much that Mary could not account for. Jesus was not like everyone else. He had heaven's passions and priorities and purpose. He did. He just, and just he, the Holy Spirit was so heavy on him. He was so connected that um, he just was so committed to that mission that God had sent him to do. Think about how his mission would have impacted her. We looked last week at Simeon. Simeon came into the temple, right? Remember? And all his expectations had been met. He had been waiting for years for the Messiah, told he wouldn't die until he saw the Messiah. And Simeon comes in the temple that day and he's all thrilled. And Simeon, listen to what Simeon says about Jesus and about his mother. And and his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to marry his mother, singled her out. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed and a sword will pierce through your own soul also and so so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And the reality is is that the mission of Jesus would he would go to the cross and give his life on the cross and they would pierce a spear through the side of Jesus and blood and water would flow out. 
But the reality is, is that Simeon is saying, you know what, when a, when a spear is pierced through his side, a spear will be pierced through your side as well. You're going to watch your son die a, a, a brutal death. It's going to be hard. And Mary doesn't exactly know everything she's getting into when she says, I'm your servant, whatever you want. It's an open-ended response. John chapter 19, but standing on the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clophus and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. What a painful time that had to be for Mary. Something she could not account for. The pain she could not account for. That's the simple reality. God invites us to join him in his redemptive plan to find our eternal purpose in him and yet we have no idea all that calling will include. The question is, how did Mary do it? How did Mary carry out her purpose? The gift of God's grace strengthened her like Paul whenever she was weak through grace she was strong. What I want you to see today is that this grace we talk about it's a practical grace it's an everyday grace it is a grace that doesn't just prepare us for the next world it is a grace that empowers me to be Christ right now today in this world. In all of my relationships, wherever I go, it empowers me to be Christ in this world. Paul, Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ. The gift of grace is the grace that empowers me to live Christ in the most practical of ways. For instance, uh, think about a few examples here. We have the grace to love that person. Is there anyone that gets on your nerves? Anyone who tends to push your buttons? Is there anybody at work who makes you miserable? Is there a relative that drives you crazy? Is there a neighbor that makes you want to move? You don't have to move. Good news, you don't have to move. Why? Because you have the gift of God's grace to handle those people. You can love that person. And you know what? I bet you all of us could write down the name of that person. That's the reality. Just as in the, in the video we saw earlier, that maniac all wound up in his religion, lost sight of the beauty of grace. I often think, you know, at Christmas, when I'm out and about shopping at Christmas, I, it's, I'm just always sensitive to this, to say something really nice to the checkout clerks and to acknowledge, you're probably having a really stressful day, aren't you? And... Uh, just to let them know. And we need to try to be extra nice to people at the checkout lines because they really are having a stressful time of it at Christmas. We have the grace to go the distance. We really do. To go the distance. Our calling is probably not as intense as Mary's calling was, but you know what? You never know. God calls us to an open-ended mission where when we say yes, and that's it. And then we just, it's like a blank check, God, okay. Yes, what do you want? My life is yours. I will serve you. In the end, God extends the invitation. And when I respond in faith, he extends the grace to carry out that mission, the empowering grace I need. We have the grace to tell our story. I said earlier that God uses us from the inside out. He uses our personality and our experiences and our abilities and our pain and our hurt and our brokenness. And God uses all of that to tell his story and the reality is we have the grace to tell our story sometimes it is difficult to tell our story we have the grace to do that mary has a story as does joseph and the shepherd and the wise men i think about the story of the shepherds how 
significant that was the night that Christ was born and their role in that story. And then finally, we even have the grace to bear our cross. Part of our calling is to bear our cross and our calling is not always easy. You know, as we, as we move towards communion, there is just one thought that, that struck me this week that I found a little bit fascinating and a little bit interesting. And I asked this question, how did Jesus endure the cross? How did Jesus endure the cross, the brutality, uh, nature of the cross? And yes, he went to the cross because of his great love for us, but what kept him hanging on the cross? That is indeed the question. And I thought about that, and let me give you just a couple of verses here. How did Jesus bear his cross? Uh, first, first Peter 2. For to you, for to this you have been called. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. How did Christ endure the cross? And if you look back there, it talks about how he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. And that idea of entrusting himself simply means he put his, hand, his life into the hands and into the care of the heavenly father who judges justly. But you know what else the father does? The father pours out an, an, an immense amount of grace. Back here in Hebrews 4, we know this verse well. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect, as, respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And I was thinking the reality of how did Christ endure the cross? Well, he endured it. He didn't endure it through willpower. We know he didn't do that. What did he say? He said, not my will, but yours be done. He didn't endure it through willpower. He didn't endure it through the flesh. He, he is very clear in saying, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He endured it in part through the Holy Spirit. But you know what I think really played a factor for Christ enduring the cross? I never thought about this. As Jesus is hanging there on the cross, as he's taking the brunt of our sin, as, as he's taking the wrath of God for sin on himself and burying that in his body on the tree, you know what else I think he received from the Father? I think he received the empowering grace of God. I really believe he received that empowering grace of God. Jesus bore his own grace, uh, his own cross in part by experiencing the Father's grace so that when he was weak, he was strong. Where did that strength on the cross come from? To not, when he was reviled, to say nothing in return. What, what was that that enabled him to just hang there and pay the price why, why, when he was weak, was he so strong? Because there's this empowering grace. And Christ is our example. And he relied on that grace just as you and I need to consider that grace and how it will empower us each and every day. So I'm going to ask Wayne and Ken to come up. And we're going to pass out the elements here. And we're going to celebrate communion today. And I just want you to think as, as we celebrate communion, just a couple of things to put through your mind. Have I, like Mary, made an open-ended commitment to God with my life? What a challenging thing to think about. 
Have I made that kind of commitment to God? At the same time, where in my life do I need to realize God's grace this morning? Where do I need to realize God's grace this morning? And the second half of that really simply is, how can my having faith help me experience God's grace? How can my having faith help me experience that grace? Father God, as we head into communion, prepare our hearts to be drawn into your presence and speak to us, Lord, those things you want us to hear. Thank you for your body. Thank you for your blood. Thank you for your incredible grace. In Jesus' name, amen.